0: This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For those who listen. For those who are willing to listen. Israel
1: leads the world, vaccinating its entire population before anyone else on the planet, and by Passover 2021, bringing new meaning to Pesach's eternal defining phrase, why this night is different from all other nights. Amid the withering, unrelenting and often speculative coverage of covid This is the Good News Podcast about Israel's latest, finest hour. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. How has Israel managed to roll out the vaccine at such speed? A deep faith in science and health tech? A militarized efficiency? A high price on the value of life? A commitment to innovation? And a unifying national cause? We'll hear from Israel's leading researcher and innovator, in their largest healthcare organization, Klalitz Ranbalisa.
2: We are very fortunate to be standing on the shoulders of giants. Our, you know, people at the 90s in Israel were smart enough to create electronic medical records and make them uh, ubiquitous all over the system. This puts Israel ahead of the curve in terms
1: of planning and alleviating major medical problems which afflict the whole world.
2: We put into practice and into scale concepts that in other places are considered theoretical. So the availability of data, the will to change and transform the system, as well as the innovative spirit of the local ecosystem within the health sector, and from the outside, all culminate together to create a very interesting setting for innovation and practice. You can help cure the world.
1: As Israel created vaccination headlines, fans of the Abraham Accords were quick to point out that the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, the first counter-signatories with Israel on the White House lawns in September of 2020, also led the world in the percentages of their populations vaccinated against COVID. Here is His Excellency Mansour Abul hul the UAE's ambassador here in London, with his thoughts. Thank you, Ambassador.
3: The cooperation we're seeing between the UAE and Israel on the treatment of coronavirus and development of vaccines is really a first for the region, and it couldn't have come at a more fitting time. We're seeing partnership across our business sectors between the two countries, and there's a combined effort to really understand the best way to combat the pandemic. We're also seeing huge progress on vaccination of our populations, both the UAE and Israel have demonstrated world-leading progress in their programs uh, for vaccinating. This is a significant step for both countries and the first of many gradual and direct uh, steps in developing the bilateral uh, relationship. I look forward to seeing more progress on this front between our two countries as we combat the pandemic uh, and we also look forward to accelerate uh, economies in a
1: post-COVID world. A pandemic lesson from pre-Israel history from Colonel Richard Kemp, himself a national security veteran who chaired Britain's COBRA, responsible for coordinating national intelligence, including MI5 and MI6.
4: The last time Israel had to deal with a major plague over the land, which was malaria, when Israel conquered malaria back in the period after. When I say Israel, it was actually done pre-the Jewish state. It was done in the land of the Mandate of Palestine after the First World War, when they had one of the greatest problems of malaria that any country in the world had, which caused Arabs and Jews to die. Very, very large numbers at very young ages. Many villages and communities were... It's a very small number and decimated because of it. Large areas of the country couldn't be uh, occupied, couldn't be used.
1: And a journalist, writer, author, and hawk-like watcher of the Middle East, who writes for the Spectator, deputy editor of the JC, the Jewish Chronicle here in Britain, Jake Wallace Simons.
5: The circle that I'm I'm trying to square is how Trump can be so hugely effective in bringing peace to the Middle East. <laughs> and such an appalling person at the same time I can't quite I can't quite understand that still to this day I'm not sure whether I support him or hate him um, because he's doing these amazing achievements but at the same time behaving so ab- abominably but the I mean the Abraham accords of course have changed the face of the Middle East
1: we'll also hear from David Jones MP who's on the executive committee of the Council for Arab British Understanding and vice chair of the all party parliamentary group on Jordan on why the Abraham Accords will help spread peace and prosperity and quell the threat of regional war. And how, despite the headlines, how Israel has distributed some vaccine help to the Palestinians, but why the Palestinian Authority might just want to keep that quiet. But then there's the drip, 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 drip of anti-Israel propaganda. This is Johnny Gould's
0: Jewish State.
1: Now, if you think I add value to what's out there and you enjoy my podcasts, your generosity is a welcome thumbs up. It really, really is. Make a donation at jewishstate.co.uk by clicking on the PayPal icon, going to patreon.com slash Gould, or even you can buy me a coffee, a sort of virtual one, I think. KO! Dash fi.com slash Johnny Gould. That's K O dash fi.com slash Johnny Gould. And thank you so much. Tell your friends about Johnny Gould's Jewish state. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish state. Let's start with an
1: overview of Israel's full-blown fight back against the virus with the self-styled denizen of Fleet Street, Jake Wallace Simons, and then head over to Colonel Richard Kemp for his assessment of why Israel's led the way in vaccination.
0: This is Johnny
1: Gould's Jewish State. I am absolutely delighted to say welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State, Jake Wallace Simons.
5: Thank you very much.
1: Now, we have an amazing uh, situation where Israel is demonstrating to the world that they are a light unto the nations, which is the specific term which Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said again. And since your article in The Spectator, he has decided to throw the vaccine open even to Holocaust survivors where they are around the
5: world, which is a magnificent sentiment, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Israel has had a bit of a strange time with the coronavirus episode. Initially, Israel was streaking ahead with lockdowns, with track and trace, using sort of military and surveillance techniques, actually, to the benefit of its population to suppress the spread of the virus. But then everything went wrong and the numbers seemed to soar. And uh, all the people who were cheering it on from the sidelines suddenly felt a bit bewildered, I think. But most recently, Israel has had a comeback par excellence, Uh, in this huge achievement of becoming first in the world for rolling out the vaccine with extraordinary scenes of people getting vaccinated from their car uh, as they drive through, you know, late night vaccines, vaccine stations in the community, all brought about by a huge amount of innovation carried out by Israeli logistics experts and scientists and negotiators. And of course. Netanyahu himself, who was able to secure those early doses of the vaccine ahead of most other countries. So it's an extraordinary moment in Israeli history, really.
1: And uh, perhaps par mitsuyan rather than par excellence might be the term to use, Metsuyan meaning excellent in, uh, in Hebrew. As always, it is my pleasure to welcome Colonel Richard Kemp to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Welcome to you, sir.
4: Thank you very much, Johnny. It's a real pleasure to be back with you yet again on your marvellous programme.
1: You're winning your third cap today, which is unprecedented. Now, of course, you were a member of uh, COBRA, the government's top-level crisis management committee. Health really is as much an issue of national security as counter-terrorism. And so I guess the first question is, are the most successful nations in vaccinating their populations those which apply the values of defence against other security threats?
4: I think there's a very good point you make there, a good question you ask. And I think we can look at the responses of a number of countries in the world to coronavirus in terms of their control measures to try and reduce it and also what we know of their plans to vaccinate against it. And what, one thing we have seen is, that, is the effectiveness of authoritarian states at dealing with this. Now, of course, that effectiveness does come at a price. They can simply command people to do whatever it is they want them to do, and they will do it, by and large. Uh, and they don't need to worry about what the media say, they don't need to worry about, because they control the media, of course. They don't need to worry about opposition, because there isn't any significant opposition. So they simply can organize things in a, in a very authoritarian, dictatorial way, as they do everything else. And, and in many cases, that's been shown to be effective, which you'd expect. Now, of course, the price, you pay for that in your the, the entire life of your society is certainly not worth what you gain in a crisis like this. But what it does do, I think, is to illustrate the kind of all-out approach you need to, to fight a virus like this and to vaccinate people against it. And I would say that one country that we've seen striking, I wouldn't even call it a middle path, but making use of all of the uh, mechanisms of crises that it is unfortunately very used to deal with, while not being an authoritarian state, not having a dictatorial regime, yet being extremely effective is Israel. And I think most people recognize Israel has led the world as far as the vaccination program is concerned. Yes, it's had its problems with actually starting and stopping lockdowns, etc. But I don't think it's been any worse, particularly in any other country, uh, in, in terms of controlling the virus. But I think everyone would acknowledge that it's led the world. And, and there, there are reasons for that. And one of those reasons is The the fact that this country is run by and peopled by individuals who have, with virtually no exceptions, have military experience. Mm. And therefore, they have an understanding of the need, I think, for the kind of measures that military forces and indeed police forces in some circumstances apply to dealing with other crises. And on top of that, the country has been at war virtually continuously to one level or another since 1948. And people understand, you know, the, the need for express measures to be taken and for all hands to go to the pump when necessary. Now, I'm sure many Israelis watching this will be smiling at what I'm saying because they probably also tell you how chaotic the bureaucracy can be <laughs> in the country, and I think we all know that, in the same same as it is in our country. But what one reality is that when when those people uh, see a, a threat to themselves, whether it's a threat from rockets, a threat from terrorism, or a threat from a a, an illness like this I think they you know they, they, they do tend to have a very effective military almost military type way of responding.
1: Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish state? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about
5: Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country
4: in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends there isn't there isn't a fertility rate problem in in, in israel um for instance there there is in most european countries there is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in
1: order to unite its people and hillel neuer whose un watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the un human rights in geneva
0: the challenges are great, they're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, The known to some of the woke revolution, where there's kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be canceled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from journalists, and often it's, uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy. be honest and we get to be truth tellers Uh, so i am deeply concerned if you like johnny's regular podcasts think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash johnny gould or buy him a coffee he loves coffee ko-fi.com slash johnny gould
1: David Collier, who is obviously a very prominent pro-Israel researcher and journalist, he tried to navigate through some of the reasons why Israel has been so successful so fast. And he says it's never going to be a single cause about why Israel has responded so incredibly. Uh, He says, of course, Israel always puts an enormously high price on life. No soldier is left behind. And then he talks about the Kupat Cholim system. Uh, And that is that not one central player in the vaccination like the NHS over here, but several like Klalit, Maccabi, Meyuchedet and Leomit. This is the sort of multiple NHS scenario that we have in Israel. And it means that several brains in each community are organised separately to deal with their own patients. Obviously, science and technology is a great economic driver for the economy and the ID system. There's no real bother about anonymity. It's not a big thing in Israel. People know pretty much where everyone is and many of the systems are integrated. And of course, a militarized system to handle mass events, communities like kibbutzim and small towns, uh, cities on the, the West Bank as well. Everyone knows Moshevim, the, uh, the half kibbutz, half farm communities, which are becoming sort of districts and towns of, uh, of major cities. And they respond well to hostile acts. This is a this is kind of a security issue where the threat isn't from uh, from bombs or rockets. It's a threat from health, which is a similar threat.
5: Yes. I mean, there's much more to say on that as well. Uh, I mean, you're right in that the emergency response uh, in Israel is uh, sadly perhaps very well refined or has become very well refined, has had to become very well refined over the years. And we see that mentality driving Israel's attempts to quash the virus and to get the vaccination right all the way through. I mean, for instance, one uh, anecdote which struck me was that in one vaccination centre recently, they uh, ran out of time. So the vaccine centre had to close and they still had doses of the vaccine left, which had to be used that evening. And so nurses went out into the street and grabbed a pizza delivery guy and gave him a shot. I mean, that sort of can-do spirit has been vital. But I think there are other elements, like practical elements as well, that have contributed towards the success. So, for example, early planning. Israel paid reportedly over the odds, by some degree, to get these first vaccines in. Benjamin Netanyahu himself developed a personal relationship with the bosses of Pfizer and promised to give Pfizer uh, Israeli data about the vaccine use in response for getting these, these first doses. And of course, Israel was in a position to give them that data because it's got one of the best uh, sort of digitalized health system in the world, which allows for that data to be harvested and then to be used in further research. But there are other innovations as well. So, for instance, Israeli scientists found a way of getting more doses out of each vial of vaccine than had initially been intended, therefore stretching it further. And in addition, when the vaccines arrived on these huge pallets uh, in Ben Gurion Airport, rather than take them out like that, the Israeli logistics experts decided to find a way of transporting them in small pizza box style size insulated boxes so that they could remain uh, at minus 70 but be taken out by motorbikes or whatever and passed out into small centres throughout the country in the community so that people didn't have to travel too far, particularly during lockdown. Things like that, you know, all, all of these small but vital innovations have contributed towards this massive success, all the way from the initial negotiations uh, and securing those vaccines, all the way down to the grassroots rollout and everything in between. It's been a, a, just a magnificent display of, uh, of togetherness with a strong national spirit.
1: I was indeed very privileged to speak to Ran Balitza, the Head of Research at CLALIT, who ran through the extraordinary artificial intelligence and data which Israel has, where they've mapped millions and millions of people in the Israeli gene pool and of course uh, Israel's gene pool extends to 200 nations around the world. It's an extraordinary level of data which they can then feed to uh, Monsieur Bola at Pfizer which is uh, is an incredible uh, gift to be able to give in return.
2: We are very fortunate to be standing on the shoulders of giants you know people at the 90s in Israel were smart enough to create electronic medical records and make them uh, ubiquitous all over the system so since mid 90s at Klalit, we have had electronic medical records in all of p- physicians' offices and so in every hospital ward. And so there's abundance of data of massive amounts being collected and harnessed for the use of our patients. This
1: puts Israel ahead of the curve in terms of planning and alleviating
2: major medical problems which afflict the whole world we put into practice and into scale concepts that in other places are considered theoretical and so we have at Clalete been practicing predictive modeling in practice for over a decade now so tens and hundreds of thousands of people receiving care based on personalization and predictive models in massive scales for a decade so the availability of data the will to change and transform the system, as well as the innovative spirit of the local ecosystem within the health sector and from the outside, all culminate together to create a very interesting setting for innovation and in practice. And this is four million people, isn't it? So.
1: You can help cure the world with all the different uh, afflictions, all the different health issues that you see amongst those millions of people. And they have arrived into Israel from all four corners of the world. So, in a sense, every population around the
2: world can benefit from the data you find, the differences between people. We are now moving into an innovation-driven strategy where we will try more and more to take the insights that we've gained uh, and take them out to the world in various ways in creating spin-offs and startups within Clalit. And also by allowing startups and organizations from around the world to test drive their new ideas at Clalit so we can actually uh, prove whether or not they're making a difference. But then there's the drip, drip. Drip,
1: drip of anti Israel propaganda. On Sky News, Middle East correspondent Mark Stone makes the assumption that Gaza's suffering is because of Israel. He uses that word blockade.
3: They are images and sounds familiar to medics around the world right now. But this is Gaza, where the ability to treat the coronavirus is so much harder. In this blockaded and overcrowded enclave, it is a daily battle. At Gaza City's al-Ramal clinic, they are testing as much as they can. But the vaccine is the real way out of this, and here they could be months away from receiving it. Yet, just 50 miles away at Israel's main airport, the latest consignment of vaccine arrived at the weekend. The Israeli Prime Minister on hand to receive it. This is the uncomfortable politics of vaccine procurement because in Israel, the world's most efficient vaccine programme is underway. 20% of the population has already had it. But in the Palestinian territories, the number vaccinated is zero. The Israeli Minister of Health told Sky News it is not up to Israel to provide the vaccine to the Palestinian territories. Why is that? Why are you not helping them? Well, I think that we've been helping our Palestinian neighbours.
1: Ruling Hamas might be the actual cause of Gaza's suffering, And that they and their henchmen, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, might be occupying forces, might be the oppressors of their own people. That never comes into it. If you're a Western media outlet, is this really a train of thought to advance peace? I mean, really. I mean, Israel has offered help to the Palestinians. And I saw Asher Salmon uh, say that obviously he hasn't got enough resources to deal with Israelis. And that includes Arab Israelis, Christian Israelis, Jewish Israelis, whatever Israelis uh, you you care to mention, but they have offered help to the Palestinians, and they've been knocked back.
5: Hmm. I think that it sometimes feels like when it comes to the the, the left, who sadly these days are associated with uh, a dim view of Israel. And when it comes to Israel's detractors, whatever Israel's position, there's a criticism for that, you know, whether Israel offers to provide vaccinations to the Palestinians or not. There's a way of criticizing that. I mean, for example, for example, suggesting that Israel should be providing vaccinations to the Palestinians is sort of suggesting that Israel should be controlling Palestinian populations. I mean, the healthcare is under the control of the Palestinian Authority, not not Israel. So what are you saying? That Israel should be occupying and colonializing um, Arab areas more so they can take over their healthcare systems? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, the left sort of almost wants Israel to be this kind of one state so that Israel can then take on the responsibility for all the failings and all the suffering in all the Palestinian areas, and also as a sort of first step towards suggesting that a one-state solution be implemented, which involves dismantling the Jewish identity of Israel as well further down the line. So that suits that agenda. On the other hand, they say that Israel should get out of Palestinian territory, allow Palestinians to run their own affairs and to be a sovereign state. Many, many countries around the world have recognized the sovereignty of Palestine, even though it doesn't yet exist as a state. And at the same time, they want to say that uh, Israel should be providing vaccines to another sovereign nation. I mean, surely you can't have it both ways, but it feels like, as I said, whichever position Israel takes and whatever Israel does, there's a ready-made criticism for that. Often, It doesn't really matter if the criticisms contradict themselves as long as there's criticism to be had. And I think that this particular episode was very interesting because at the time when I think it was the Observer first started criticising Israel for not vaccinating the Palestinians, at that time, no Palestinian had complained about it. No Palestinian expected Israel to provide vaccines to them because they knew that it was their health system. Israel was another country. Of course, there's a lot of interface and it's it's messy on the West Bank, but no Palestinian was complaining about it because they didn't. They wouldn't have expected it. In fact, it would, I think the Palestinians felt it would have shamed them to have to ask Israel for for a vaccine. At least the leadership felt that. Um, and it was only when the Guardian began to be offended on their behalf, sort of agitating for more conflict in the Middle East, or rather the observer agitating for more conflict on the Middle East because there isn't enough. Amnesty International jumped on the bandwagon, releasing a statement about institutionalized discrimination or something like that. That then, you know, further down the line, the Palestinians have started to say, "Oh, actually, maybe you should give us the vaccine. Yeah, you know, maybe that is a good idea." And and they've sort of followed that lead to some extent. So, like you say, I mean, Israel has made good noises and has even offered. Uh, it actually has transferred numbers of vaccine doses into the Palestinian territories which are believed to have been used by certain members of the leadership and the Palestinians of course have their own reason to keep that quiet because it's a little bit uh, undemocratic to vaccinate your leaders and leave them, leave everybody else um, yeah. in trouble. Um, so it, it's not a clear picture now but I think what is clear is that it seems like there's a big contingent of the commentariat in the west who are just going to criticize Israel whatever they do and there's always an angle to take that's negative Um, But it's just sad that they've allowed that uh, impulse to cloud an appreciation of the great achievements that Israel has has made, which can have beneficial results for everybody in terms of learning how we can follow Israel's example in Britain and elsewhere.
4: It it came as absolutely no surprise the way this has unfolded in relation to anti-Israel propaganda in the Western media, both here in the UK and across the Atlantic, and I suspect in mainland Europe as well, that they had a real problem, a real problem, because they, they were faced with Israel's world-leading progress in the vaccination program, which they couldn't ignore. Public interest is so great in this whole issue, quite understandably, they couldn't just ignore what Israel was doing, as they do their best, whenever they can, to ignore every other good thing that Israel does. If they can find something they can distort or turn into bad, they will. And if they can ignore something that's good anyway and can't be twisted, they will certainly ignore it. They couldn't do that with this. So what they did, they reported to an extent the facts of Israel's tremendous uh, successes so far. But they had to then contort that with the news that Israel, of course, has discriminated against broken international law in not directly vaccinating Palestinian Arabs with the same in the same program as uh, Israeli citizens. And, and it's not just media, it's not just newspapers, it's not just television, radio. It, it's also people like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the United Nations, other so-called human rights organizations, which don't really have an interest in human rights, but they, in many cases, like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, they seem to and the UN, they seem to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to bash Israel. Rather than deal with proper human rights, but they all latched onto this, and they all lied. They all falsely accused Israel of doing something. And they, this is not. This is, let's not let's not be mistaken about this. These people are not fools. If I understand and you understand, and your listeners and viewers understand, as as I'm sure they do, that Israel has broken no international laws, that Israel does not have this obligation to uh, inoculate Palestinian Arabs in the Middle East. But if we understand that, they understand, of course they understand it, but they can't stand it. They can't bear it. They have to twist it. They have to make it fit their agenda. It's sinister. And it's part of a long pattern of slander and abuse against the Jewish state. And the reality is, of course, you know that the Oslo Accords in the 1990s discriminated between what uh, Israel is responsible for what the Palestinian Authority, which it created from. Healthcare, including inoculations, were the responsibility exclusively of the Palestinian Authority. That is the law. That's the treaty. That's the way it works. They know that. It does not contravene any international law, even though they've quoted international as They say it's contravened. So that's the demarcation and the discrimination. You rightly said that we we do understand that Israel has provided some doses of vaccine at the specific unofficial request of Palestinian Authority officials, which as I understand it, as you say, went to the top level officials rather than maybe mere normal individuals, um, which is a a kind of absolutely characteristic of the corruption and self-interest of the Palestinian Authority, which has, of course, taken vast amounts of money from our taxes. And rather than use them on the welfare and the well-being, the good and the economy of their people, they've gone straight into their own pockets. And, you know, I think it's true to say that leaders of the Palestinian Authority and terrorist leaders like Hamas are among the wealthiest extremists anywhere in the world.
1: Well, Britain is playing catch-up and a successful catch-up, it might be said. We've had our Problems with management of this, there have been all sorts of stories saying that the second injection for elderly people has been suspended. I'm hoping that Britain in its uh, adversarial way can come together and sort of help this process. But millions of people here are being uh, inoculated and in time. Uh, but one thing struck me about the early success of these league tables is that top was Israel, then the UAE, and then Bahrain. And I'm thinking, well, hang on, what have where those, those three countries been mentioned before uh, in, uh, in, in consortium? And the answer is, of course, the Abraham Accords. Isn't it an amazing thing? That uh, first of all, three very defined nation states who obviously won't come together to produce some kind of Middle East style European Union with open borders, but is responsible for its own people is vaccinating their people in a way that leaves France and Germany, Brazil, the United States, India, looking on in, well, hopefully admiration.
5: Mm, mm. yeah I mean the Abraham Accords have been just the most significant thing to happen to the Middle East in in decades if not longer for me the circle that I'm I'm trying to square is how Trump can be so hugely effective in bringing peace to the Middle East and such an appalling person at the same time I can't quite I can't quite understand that still to this day. I'm not sure whether I support him or hate him um, because he's doing these amazing achievements but at the same time behaving abominably. But the I mean the Abraham accords of course have changed the face of the Middle East and it's um it's a coming together of various factors including uh, a long held strategy by Benjamin Netanyahu that he's been pursuing for uh, over a decade to first improve relations with countries on the periphery, including Brazil that like you mentioned and uh, Japan and others, and then working on uh, establishing relations with wider countries in the Arab, Arab region. And we've seen that taking place with the end game of having the Palestinians kind of boxed in by cordiality, um, which will enable a, 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 a an atmosphere of peace to prevail, to allow them to, to make the steps necessary to create peace themselves. And we've seen that happening with astonishing speed with the help of Donald Trump offering the right sweeteners to the right Arab nations to enable them to jump on board.
1: David Jones MP for Clwyd West, who's on the Executive Committee of the Council for Arab-British Understanding and Vice Chair of the All-Parliamentary Group on Jordan with his take on the Accords.
6: The signature of the Abraham Accords in Washington was by any standards a moment of huge political significance, putting aside over half a century of strife and coming together in a new spirit of mutual respect and understanding. In a region that has been so blighted by warfare, this was a remarkable thing. It may well be, of course, that in the years to come, disputes do arise among the three nations. But those disputes are far more likely, as a consequence of the Accords, to be resolved by negotiation, quite simply by talk, rather than by taking up arms. The Middle East has had enough warfare for far too long. It's a region of huge promise and potential. And the Abraham Accords themselves give the three countries every opportunity to realize that potential and to help spread prosperity throughout the Middle East. Colonel Richard Kemp.
4: Even before the Abraham Accords, there was no doubt that the UAE and Bahrain and other countries in the Middle East benefited from Israeli expertise, and that includes Saudi Arabia, etc., Jordan, Egypt. And that expertise, by and large, in in intelligence, in countering terrorism, in countering threats to themselves, but also in technology in a range of different areas. The, the cooperation being delivered in you know, very much under the radar fashion. Well, now it's less under the radar as Abraham has come into play, and hopefully will expand in the coming months and years. But yes, I would see, I would see the same pattern as you've seen. And incidentally, one, I think one point that I would make about about Israel's approach to coronavirus, dealing with coronavirus, and that applies to vaccination probably more, or at least as much as controlling the disease itself, is education. And I think, you know, I've seen examples of the ways in which they've gone out of their way to educate their people in the benefits of the measures that are being advocated in a way that I haven't seen so much. I mean, yes, there is an element of that in this country, but I think they've gone even further.
5: But also, I think the other thing that's influenced it is the Arab Spring. You know, from 2010 onwards, we saw the collapse of many countries in the Arab world, particularly, you know, Syria becoming a sort of national abattoir, Lebanon becoming bankrupt and and, and basically a failed state, Iraq becoming mired in factional conflict and fragmentation. I think that that meant that other Arab leaders looked on and said, actually, this this old idea of pan-Arabism, of Arab nationalism, of us all pulling together in solidarity and creating this modern Arab world is failing around us. And it's clearly in our interest now with the rise of Iran and Turkey as a threat to have Israel as an ally, Is it still really necessary to give the Palestinians a veto over our relationships with Israel? And clearly the answer to that is no. You know, it's not in in the Arab world's interest. And it's also not in the Palestinians' interest to keep vetoing these peace deals. I mean, look at it from the Palestinians' point of view. Next time they go to negotiations, they're going to have Israel across the table with Arabs on the same side as Israel. You know, they've got friends, they've got the UAE, Bahrain and others that care about the Palestinian issue. On the Israeli side, you know, Netanyahu is not going to compromise these great alliances for the sake of pushing forward uh, a more aggressive settlement program on the West Bank, is he? You know, so in a way, Netanyahu, in, in creating these alliances, has almost put paid to the idea that he is this kind of warmongering expansionist demagogue because he's created his own backstops by having these, these allies on, on the same side as him. And from the Palestinian point of view, It it will offer them a lot of opportunities to move forward in a peace deal that's reasonable, that that looks after their interests as well as those of the other side.
1: And this idea of pan-Arabism, which until perhaps uh, 2020 united uh, the Arab world, has broken down and in a discussion I had on this uh, podcast series with Jason Greenblatt, of course, the architect of the Peace to Prosperity plan, he talked about himself being a religious Jew, and uh, people asked him. Many people ask me. They he says, uh, you know, what is a religious Jew going to do to help this uh, get away? And the answer is that there was a mutual religious respect with the Saudi royal family, even in the Palestinian Authority, where m- you know many of them broke off from their discussions to do the afternoon prayer or the evening prayer, also kosher food, which indeed was even given to him by the Palestinian Authority as a mark of peace, a halal food, you know, there's a lot and lot of similarities. And when religious ideas and when the union of religion bonds Muslims and Jews together, the idea of pan-Arab nationalism breaks down. And I think that's maybe the kernel of the success of the Abraham
5: Accords. I think that's a fascinating observation. And I think there there are two things I would say about that. The first is that peace is made between two strong partners. Peace is made between enemies, not between friends. Asserting your identity and being unashamed of it and having the confidence to say, this is our culture and these are my standards and this is me is a vital part to being respected. And so I think that for a religious Jew to go into those negotiations saying, you know, you've got your culture and your requirements and your habits and traditions uh, and I fully respect those and I've got mine and I respect my own and I expect you to afford me the same respect that I afford you is a very healthy relationship of mutual respect that really is the basis for any kind of outcome that's equal and that's harmonious and that's going to be long lasting. And So I think that in a way, his his respect for his own tradition will have projected a lot more dignity and, and self-assurance, which I think contributes towards a better outcome. The other thing to say is that Trump's negotiating team and the Trump administration really broke the mould. And the mould was this sort of professional diplomat, professional politician, global elite, I suppose, class of negotiators, Obama and John Kerry and all the rest of them, who basically rehashed the same ideas and the same approaches for decades, expecting a different result. And everybody had become so familiar with the status quo that there was nobody with any vision for really breaking it. You know, all the peace plans were basically along the same kind of lines with with a few tweaks here and there. And the language used was always the same and the approach used was always the same because it was all from the diplomatic playbook. And the fascinating thing about the Trump administration is that he brought people from different backgrounds in, um, including people related to him, um, with an entirely different mentality and approach, a much more kind of go-getting approach, a street-fighting, deal-doing, sort of freewheeling approach that looked at people's interests and said, yes, we've all got used to the status quo, but that's not the be-all and end-all. Let's sort this thing out. And I think that we can see how effective that was. Most extraordinary results that we've seen with the Abraham Accords and and with the um, curtailment of Iran's dominance of the region and in other areas that have come from this no-holds-barred, brash sort of can-do attitude. And um, my fear really is that with Biden coming in, even if he wants to push forward with the agenda that Trump was pursuing, which, which he said that he kind of will with regard to Arab peace and so forth, I worry his team and his administration and he himself will just be a throwback to the old attitudes and they'll be unable to replicate the kind of in your face, here's a the deal, these are, here's the offer, let's do it approach that was so successful for the last administration.
1: Well, at least John Kerry, even though he's been accepted into the new Biden administration, is in charge of climate and not in the Middle East, for it was he who uh, told us that uh, there could be no peace without the
5: Palestinians. Uh, That's so. right. Although, I mean, even though even though he is, you know, he's got the climate brief, that doesn't mean that he won't try to be involved with other areas or be consulted on them because he's got such uh, expertise, as, as we all know.
1: Well, I'm not going to ask you to define expertise, but we'll other, <laughs> other, other methods off the record for that at the time. The one millionth citizen of Israel to be inoculated was 66 year old Arab Israeli Abd wahhab Jabarin. And incidentally, uh, jabs were also offered to Arab residents of East Jerusalem, classed by some Western liberals as Palestinian. It rather underscores, doesn't it, Jake, that if you are an Arab in the Middle East, you are most likely to be best served in your citizenry as an Israeli, rather than if you're over the border in
5: Lebanon or Syria. Absolutely. I mean, the lot of Arab Israelis is far better than those of, of their uh, fellow Arabs, probably all of the surrounding countries. Uh, this is something that people on the ground know, you know, and when you have Palestinian Arabs who are gay, who are fleeing to Israel for refuge, who want to live there. And, you know, I've been on the West Bank many times, and it's just accepted that they know that if they were living on the other side of the border, their lives would be better. They'd be earning more money, they'd have better opportunities, had the support of a functioning state, uh, I mean, you know, I remember covering the terror attack in Istanbul a few years ago, where there was a shooting in a nightclub, and there was um, an Israeli citizen was was I believe killed in that attack, and the Israeli government made every effort to repatriate the body, to support the family, to to aid with intelligence and and so on and so forth, and that was an Arab an Arab-Israeli victim. So if you're an Arab-Israeli, you will get the full support of the state. Now, I'm not saying there aren't social problems and there aren't instances of of discrimination. Of course there are. But, you know, by comparison to being an Arab in Syria, I mean, I know which one I'd choose.
1: Yes, if you have uh, higher ideals, then uh, at least uh, problems, issues can be reformed, can be navigated. Jake, uh, finally, if I can uh, ask you a question about Benjamin Netanyahu's triumphant statement about the Passover Seder night, the idea that uh, we lean on that night because it is different from all other nights, and his concept that by then, and maybe even before, uh, the entire Israeli population will have been inoculated, so truly Pesach will be uh, a night different from all other nights, certainly over the last 365 days. Is that possible? Do
5: you think it's certainly possible? I think the the jury is out at the moment as to whether the vaccine is actually going to work because nobody has tried this vaccine before. I mean, it's been through clinical trials and we know that it works, but is it? But, but that's a different question as to whether it's going to work to suppress the coronavirus across an entire population. And let's all cross our fingers and hope that it that it will. That's one of the one of the reasons that Pfizer is going to make use of the Israeli data is to prove, is to to or to further research how it affects you know herd immunity. But uh, if any country is going to benefit from that, it's going to be Israel. It's streaking so far ahead, and I am confident that by Pesach uh, things are going to be looking up in Israel, and hopefully there'll be a COVID-free country.
4: Jake
1: Wallace Simons, thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's
4: Jewish State.
5: A pleasure. Thank you for having me
4: patriotism plays a big role in the life of, of any country that is under some form of threat. Now, arguably, it's less important to a country that's not under any great threat, but it does. I think it does help to unify, it helps to people to work together to a common purpose, even in times of, of low risk, low threat. But in particular, when you're threatened by something, whether it's external forces, whether it's terrorism from within, whether it's a pandemic, then patriotism, which essentially means people identifying with their country, with their nation, with their fellow citizens, and working in their interests, above all, you know, beyond financial reward, beyond direct personal interest. Of course, personal interest and national interest are are a great deal in common. But beyond all of that, patriotism, I think, is a force when when it can be adopted as a force that can work enormous benefits in this kind of situation. And I think I would say one thing about the state of Israel compared to most European states, if not all European states, is that patriotism is stronger among the Israelis than it is in, for example, our country and in European countries. And that's partly deliberate because patriotism and association with national identity have been deliberately undermined in Europe in order to advance the idea of a European project. But I think it's telling to see that our country has been the most advanced and most successful at obtaining and then beginning a programme of vaccination among all the countries in Europe. And that's partly, probably almost entirely because of the constraints that the EU have had on their member states and of course we're not one. And finally, Richard, it wouldn't be a discussion
1: uh, with Colonel Richard Kemp without a state of the nation snapshot from you, sir. The Biden administration is in power across all three arms of the American executive, something that I don't think many would have imagined even uh, two months ago. Uh, But my question is, I mean, they are a very, very different administration in flavour to the Trump administration, and so do you think they will use the unravelling days of Donald J. Trump's time as president as an excuse to overturn some of his policies, particularly in relation to the Middle East?
4: What we've seen in the last four years of the Trump administration is the most extraordinary progress in the Middle East in terms of uh, normalization of relationships and indeed peace between Israel and the Arabs. It's a phenomenal accomplishment. And really started, I think, with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech to the Knesset in 2015, in which he stood up against Barack Obama's plans to create a deal with the Iranians on the nuclear issue, which, which we call the JCPOA, which effectively paved the way for a nuclear bomb for Iran. And I think when he made that stand, that lone, almost Churchillian stand, as I'm sure Prime Minister Netanyahu would certainly like it to be presented. <laughs> He'd love it, and indeed, yeah. there, there, there were elements of Churchill in that. I, I, I had the the privilege of being there, and it was one of the most tiring few hours of my life because we spent our entire time getting up and down, and standing ovations for <laughs> during his speech. But it was it was a it was a monumental occasion uh, in Congress, and that led the Arab countries. I think Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain. Um, in particular, but other Arab countries as well, it led them to understand that Israel and they had common cause. They could be and should be on the same side in relation to a common threat. And that, in turn, with enormous work by the likes of Jason Greenblatt, Jared Kushner, David Friedman in uh, in Israel, and of course President Trump himself, uh, as well as Israelis Netanyahu and his people and Yossi Cohen, the head of Mossad, led to the Abraham Accords, and that is a phenomenal achievement. I think unparalleled anywhere. And in fact, over here in Britain, David Trimble, Lord Trimble, the former First Minister of Northern Ireland, has put in a nomination. He himself is a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Yeah. He put in a nomination for Prime Minister Netanyahu to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, as, as along uh, along with the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, and you know, in recognition of the Abraham Accords, and. We, we will see what happens about that. I suspect the Nobel Committee would very much like to confer a Nobel Prize on the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi. I suspect they would be very strongly resistant to conferring one on Netanyahu, not because they don't believe he's made great achievements, but simply for political reasons. So we will see about that. I hope I hope it succeeds and I hope he gets it. But I, I say this sort of by way of, it's sort of a slightly long-winded way of answering your question. But... The fact is, we have seen phenomenal progress. We need to see that progress continue under President Biden, pushing forward with the Abraham Accords and helping to facilitate other Arab countries to join those accords. I have my doubts as to whether he will be active in that, because I do believe that he is he's filling up his administration, whatever his personal views, he's filling up his administration with traditional peace processes whose prescriptions for Peace in the Middle East have repeatedly failed over decades, but yet still believe that theirs is the right way and this is the wrong way. So that's one issue. The other issue, I think, is the Iran nuclear deal. We've seen a maximum pressure campaign imposing sanctions, really putting the regime under great pressure. And it has done so, including the, the killing of Soleimani, the, the terrorists in charge of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. These sort of actions pressure the regime to an extent where I think they are very unstable and at risk of at some point falling, which I believe would be a good thing as long as it's properly controlled. But I, I also believe that the Biden administration includes people who were strong adherents to the JCPOA, to the Iran deal, including the, the guy nominated to be the head of the CIA, was instrumental in arranging the, the JCPOA. And I think their inclination, and all the noises that are coming out of Washington now, will incline them to go that way, to, to re- try and return to the nuclear deal, which will be cat- catastrophic. They will not get any concessions out of Iran on this. They will probably, if anything, Iran will probably get them to do easier terms than up to now. Uh, And so we'll be back to a situation where we have a path paved to a nuclear weapon by a U.S.-sponsored deal and leaving Israel probably alone and with with backing of some Arab countries, including perhaps Saudi Arabia, but leaving Israel alone to to hopefully deal with the nuclear program as, as best it can in whatever way it can militarily through cyber operations, sabotage, uh, and, and maybe by eliminating other Iranian scientists and people intimately involved in the process. And China is a problem that afflicts the whole world. And I, I would strongly advocate a Biden administration. I'm sure most members of the Biden administration will be listening to your podcast, Johnny. I think they probably watch it religiously. Um, I would certainly say to them that that if nothing else, the two two of their top foreign policy priorities should be not to go back into the Iranian nuclear deal and to do everything they can to form a strong alliance to counter the dangerous progress that China is making across the world. Richard, when you are a guest
1: on my podcast, the whole world should most definitely listen. Thank you very much indeed for once again appearing on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you very much, sir.
4: Thank you, Johnny. A great pleasure as ever.
0: If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. at coffee.com slash Gould That's ko-fi.com slash Gould.